Hi there, I'm Jazzy Cook and I'm here with SciDance, a podcast to open and explore the world of dance science. I'm so excited to be chatting with Paige Rice today. Paige is currently a doctoral candidate at Edith Cowan University in Perth, Australia. She's doing analysis on the muscle fibre characteristics in dancers at Northern Arizona University. Paige received her Master of Science from Appalachian State University in Exercise Science in 2017 and completed her Bachelor of Science from the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse in Exercise and Sports Science and Spanish in 2014. Paige's primary research focuses on lower leg muscle tendon properties and stretch-shortening cycle performance in dancers, which we're talking about today. She has authored or co-authored 10 peer-reviewed journal publications and 10 conference abstract presentations. Paige has been a member of the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science since 2015 and a member of the IADAM Student Committee since 2018. Her primary aims in research are to better optimise the strength and conditioning approaches within dance science, as well as understand basic muscle function. Today's episode is an introduction to biomechanics of jumps and leaps through Paige's research, focusing on the lower leg. I learned so much talking to Paige and I hope you love this one as much as I do. Hi Paige, how's it going? It's going well. How are you, Jasmine? Yeah, really well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So we'll just start with an overview of yourself. So your career, how you got to where you are now, and like where your interest in this this biomechanics of jumps and leaps sort of comes from. Is that from a specific place or? Yeah, so I have an undergrad in exercise and sports science, and I was a dancer my whole life. I danced from three years old and then during college I was on the university dance team and I actually got sort of more into my core strength and conditioning classes for exercise and sports science and we were talking about the stretch shortening cycle and particularly when you learn about the stretch shortening cycle which just for listeners who don't have an idea of what that is, the stretch shortening cycle is the active lengthening of the muscle tendon unit as a whole, which stores elastic strain energy that is subsequently utilized upon shortening of those tissues. So the quintessential example of the stretch shortening cycle is a counter movement jump. So when you go down and jump up as high as you possibly can, Uh, and in the most comfortable way that you can. And basically the comparison between a counter movement jump and then what's termed a squat jump where you go down and you hold a squat for three seconds in a static squat position and then you jump up, usually there's a, a height discrepancy. So you jump higher when you perform what's termed that counter movement, that down and up, versus the squat jump. And the reason is because that energy that is stored in the muscle tendon unit when you stretch those tissues is dissipated as heat if it's not utilized in a timely fashion. So long story short, I was thinking about how dancers utilize the stretch shortening cycle. And dancers are so different from team sport athletes in their stretch shortening cycle function because we're much more concerned about uh, quote unquote aesthetic maintenance. So we can't throw our hip back, hips back and bring our shoulders forward in order to generate torque about the hip joint. We have to have that torque uh, coming from somewhere else in order to get up off the ground. So my question then, once I got into my master's and I started thinking more 
deeply about this was, okay, so where is that torque coming from? And we'll get into this more as we continue to talk, but uh, I was just sort of, yeah, really obsessed with the way that dancers leap and how I had always leapt. Um, and I love, that's my favorite part about dance is the jumping and the leaping. I wasn't as much of like a flattes girl. I was more into sarashas and stuff. So yeah, it was definitely like an interest from two different parts of my life that have eventually converged and, and now become my entire life. <laughs> so I guess what underpins all of this is biomechanics. So that's sort of the field we're in at the moment. So could you just outline for our listeners who might not have heard of this before, what is biomechanics? So biomechanics is in short, the physics of human movement. And I think that can sound very intimidating if you've never taken a physics course or you don't like physics. For me, I was able to grasp this a little bit more from a strength training perspective. So when we do any type of locomotion, so walking, running, jumping, we have to generate force in our muscles. And that force from our muscles is transmitted through the tendons and then to the bones in order to realize human movement. And all of this sort of comes together uh, sort of by torques around joints. So torque is basically forces around joints, angular forces. And then we also can see how different types of movement uh, change those types of forces around joints. So really, it's just kind of figuring out how uh, the initiation of, of action of human movement from the brain goes to the skeleton and what that looks like in, in different types of movement. So it's a really interesting area for anyone who's interested in human movement. Yeah, definitely. So you sort of touched on this earlier, but if we start with these stretch, stretch shortening cycles and um, sort of an outline of this, and you did mention this earlier, but what might this look like in a dance specific context? Yeah, so for dancers and, you know, I'm going to encompass mainly styles such as ballet and jazz and lyrical, some modern and contemporary movements, but you know, we're really concerned about keeping our shoulders directly over our hips, having that perfect posture. And for dancers to displace the center of mass or get up off the ground during a leap or a jump, we need to generate more force or more torque around our joints in order to do that. So for dancers, uh, there's some interesting research by Jarvis and Kulig, who I think have done a really great job uh, looking at the Sada Shah and torques around the hip, knee, ankle, and metatarsophalangeal joints, or the big toe joint. Uh, and they found that the joint with the highest torque is the ankle. So what's really neat about that is that when you uh, consider sort of the segments around the hip. You have the torso and the thigh. And those are the two biggest segments of the body. Around the knee, then you have the thigh and the, and the shank. And those would then be the second biggest. 
around the ankle, you have the shank and the foot, and those are the smallest, but the ankle is generating the most torque. So for dancers, it's twofold because they have to shift that torque more distal or away from the hip because they can't bend their hip. Uh, in order to get up off the ground. But then also we're so concerned about pointing our feet. And so aesthetic, you know, hyper plantar flexion or over pointing of the foot is also really important important. So that's kind of the uh I think the dance specific stretch shortening cycle is really all about the ankle. Whereas for most sport athletes, team sport athletes, when they're jumping, it is all about the hip. Yeah, definitely. So you did your master's on the ankle joint. Could you just tell us a little bit about this study? And I guess if we start with what your methods and process were for it. So for my master's, I looked at lower leg morphology and stretch shortening cycle performance in dancers. And I had some different dependent variables and I ended up only publishing between dancers and untrained controls. However, I actually included volleyball players too. So I'm just gonna share a little bit of those findings because they were interesting. I had recreational volleyball players. So they were on like the club team at the university and then dancers were all a part of the university's dance program and then untrained controls. So we had quite a bit more variation with the volleyball players because during like a, or in a club sport, at a university, you could get like the, you know, someone coming from high school who is the star athlete or someone who like has never played volleyball before, but has a little bit of athleticism. Uh, so there were, there was just more of probably a talent um, variation there, but we had pretty consistent data with the dancers. So that's why we ended up publishing just with them. But we were interested in sort of debunking some of the perceptions of dancers and their strength and their bone health and their, um, yeah, just shortening cycle ability. So previous research has actually shown that dancers don't always jump higher than their physically active counterparts, which is really kind of perplexing. And that was what first got me sort of hooked on all of this stuff is because when you look at, you know, a, an image of a dancer leaping, they have this beautiful height and extension. And so you would assume that they could jump higher, just a straight up counter movement jump. That is not always the case. And so that's when I started wondering, well, why not? And it's because they don't really jump like throwing their hips back and their shoulders forward. So, you know, they, if you ask a dancer to jump, it looks so stiff and upright, it's hysterical. So <laughs> they don't do it that much, but they use their ankles. So that was the first one. I wanted to look at ankle stretch shortening cycle function. And we had this amazing piece of equipment. I did my master's at Appalachian State University and it was a sled. So basically we had this piece of equipment that was a carriage at an angle. And I believe in that publication, there is, yeah, there's like a drawing up of it. So there is a carriage at an angle. I think we had it at either 10 or 20 degrees um, up off the ground. And then at the bottom were two force plates. 
so that we could get the forces of when they were hopping and stuff. And then there was what's termed a potentiometer to see how high they hopped. So they would uh, basically stand in this carriage and they performed a counter movement hop. So they would just rise onto their toes and then hop up as high as they could without any knee flexion. So their knees were tethered so that they couldn't contribute at all to the stretch shortening cycle function. So we're really isolating the ankle. And then they performed a drop hop from, I think it was 30. So we actually might've done three. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not remembering. This is so bad, but I think it was 20, 30 and 40 centimeters. So just seeing how they're dropping from a certain height and then hopping up as high as they could, how that capability was. So we looked at their stretch shortening cycle performance, and then we looked at their maximal relative strength. So basically we asked them to uh, just rise up onto their toes as fast and as hard as they could. And they had a bar restricting their movement on their back so they couldn't move anywhere. So we would just basically see what their maximal plantar flexion strength was that way. And then, we looked at, we used a PQCT, uh, which stands for Peripheral Quantitative Computed Tomography. And it basically is like an MRI for muscle, bone, and fat. And you can get uh, mass, cross-sectional area, and density from it. And then in addition to that, for bone properties, you can get the stress strain index and the ultimate fracture load. So the stress strain index was the torsional strength uh, and then the ultimate fracture load was basically like in the X or the Y plane, if you were to try and break the bone, how much force would that actually take? So dancers have this really bad, um, and I think misrepresentation of their strength, that they're not very strong. I think that there are certain areas of a dancer that maybe are underdeveloped strength-wise, as far as relative strength, so normalizing how much force someone can generate to their body mass. So obviously if you're a tiny person uh, and compared to a larger person, you might not be able to move as much weight as them. But then if you divide it by body mass, then you can see more of the relative difference. So we found that dancers had the highest relative strength and we also found that their ultimate fracture load, stress strain index, muscle cross-sectional area, and bone density was all higher than that of untrained individuals. So showing that if you isolate just the lower leg, you have a different narrative for dancers. So they're not weak anymore. They, um, and they also hopped higher. So their stretch shortening cycle function was a little bit more reflective of their leaping capabilities or what we perceive them to maybe be. And dance is potentially a stimulus for osteoblastic uh, development, which is basically just bone, bone building. So really interesting because there's so much other data that shows that dance is very harsh on the skeleton, but it might just be a regional thing. And I know that there are some studies where they've found that in particular, the hips are, the hip and the lower um, spine, the lumbar region are really, really 
affected by dance. So that might be where some of those lower bone mineral density measures are coming from. Yeah, sure. That's so interesting to find out how you did it and everything. It's really cool because you wouldn't sort of get that insight otherwise. So that's amazing. Thank you, Paige. Sure. So the ankle joint is obviously then a really important part of a dancer's stretch shortening cycle. That's clearly something that's really crucial to them. So how can we use this research to justify progression training to enhance this cycle? That's so for sure. That's a that's a huge part. Um, and I felt like during my master's thesis that it was a cross-sectional design, meaning that they only came in one time and we were just looking at, you know, what is, what is your strength? What is your stretch shortening cycle function like? And things that we didn't necessarily know for sure were because of dancing, but what we speculated were most likely coming from that. So, there's some different strength and conditioning, I think, mindsets where when you have an athlete who comes in and uh, one example I really like is for a speed skater, typically one of their legs is more dominant. And so if they have a more dominant left leg, do you train that left leg to continue to be really strong uh, and, and continue to dominate, or do you try and balance them out? So really, it depends a lot on the athlete, number one, so individualizing it, and then number two, on the level where the athlete is. Because if you have an Olympian coming to you and they want to get a gold medal, at this point in their career, you're kind of just trying to figure out how to not change them too much and how to maintain them. So you would not want to really do too much to either leg, but definitely that they have this imbalance for a reason. And they've gotten to this elite level because of how their mechanics are. Now, if you change the muscle mass, if you change the mechanics of someone, then that is going to change their performance. So that's really important. For dancers, there's sort of a two-part uh, two-fold thing to it where the ankle is the most vulnerable uh, sort of injury in dance and the reason is because when you when you plantar flex your foot you are putting the ATFL the anterior talofibular ligament in the most vulnerable position to be sprained so because of that and because we're always on our toes and always in point if there's any sort of fatigue that then causes inversion, then it's like goodbye ankle. So we do a lot of sagittal plane types of movement. And I think that unfortunately there's not as much eversion inversion going on. So strengthening eversion inversion more might be really helpful. But then in addition to that, it's not just this, um, injury prevention thing, but also a performance enhancement thing. So, yeah, so I think that there's definitely uh, different approaches that are emerging in strength and conditioning. And one approach that we have is implementing a block progression, a multi-targeted block progression. So I recently had a paper come out with one of my supervisors about this 
uh, and it was based on actually a training study that I completed last year, a part of my PhD. So the blocks are four week phases and they consist of isometrics, traditional resistance training, accentuated eccentric loading, and then lastly plyometrics to sort of realize all of those different, different blocks. And collectively, uh, we talk about in this sort of perspective paper, collectively all of these different blocks are supposed to come together to induce tendon remodeling, uh, help with injury prehabilitation, uh, increase rate of force development, and uh, sort of neuromotor patterns, and all of these different areas that once they come to fruition can really benefit stretch shortening cycle performance. So it was a really interesting training study because we isolated the ankle joint. So we were only training the ankle to see if this might have an influence on maximal ankle strength, on muscle stiffness, on tendon stiffness, on Sadasha leaping performance, and then also another portion of my PhD is looking at uh, muscle fiber mechanics and particularly elucidating the role of uh, the giant protein titan within all of that. So we uh, did our very best to pitch that to dancers. We got calf microbiopsies from girls, which was pretty cool because there have never been any studies on muscle fiber mechanics from uh, dancers, let alone from microbiopsies of dancers. So that was exciting to, to do that. But we then were able to train half of the girls and are still looking at some of the results, but it looks like isolating the ankle joint really does uh, help with strength and stretch shortening cycle function. So in, in that paper as well, I believe we outlined some ideas, but when you're isolating the ankle joint, you really have to get creative. So for some of the isometric exercises, we were doing what are termed pushing, pulling, and holding exercises. So basically the dancers in this block, uh, we would know what their one repetition maximum was. So their one RM, and we would do different percentages of that where they were holding the weight on their back at either a slightly dorsiflexed ankle position or uh, a plantar flexed ankle position. And the reason for that is because there's research showing that doing isometrics at different muscle lengths, so longer, obviously, if your foot is dorsiflexed and shorter if your foot is plantar flexed, can be really beneficial. You get more of a stimulus throughout the range of motion. So we held at different muscle lengths, uh, just holding the weight on their back. And then there was a bar that was stationary in another uh, lifting rack where they would just basically push into the bar as hard as they could. Uh, for three seconds and that was again at those two different muscle lengths and then we did some sort of difficult to explain but dorsiflexion exercises where they were pulling a bar towards them or holding a kettlebell on their foot so uh yeah that was the isometrics block and then with traditional resistance training it was a little bit more straightforward where you know, they were doing calf raises, uh, single leg calf raises, 
they were doing kettlebell uh, sort of dorsiflexions where they were bringing the kettlebell. So the kettlebell was on their toe and then they would bring their toe up towards their face. So they were able to get some of their um, tibialis anterior in there. And then we would do eversion inversion um, with a band because that's again, something that I think is really important. And then for accentuated eccentric loading, we hit both the gastrox and the soleus uh, muscles by doing sort of, and uh, the girls would go into a releve with both feet and then they would slowly lower down in um, back to the ground with just one foot. So they were overloading the lengthening phase of, of the muscle. And then they would do that sitting as well. So uh, they would be in a Smith machine, if you're familiar with that. And they would have a bar resting on their knees and then their, their feet would be up on a block. And then they would go into releve again. And then same thing, they would just come down with one leg. And so when you're standing or your knees are extended, your gastrocnemii muscles are being engaged primarily. And then when you're sitting with your knees flexed, then you're engaging your soleus muscle. And then lastly, for the plyometric block, we did just a lot of like hopping. Uh, they hopped with very little weight on their back with a barbell. And again, we're just focusing on the ankle. So kind of what you would do in a dance class almost. Um, but we asked them to stay turned in because all of the other exercises have been turned in. And then the girl's favorite was they would have, so basically in a lifting rack, there would be a band hanging down from it and they would put their arms through it. So the band was sort of underneath their armpits and, and coming up through their, um, or coming up in front of their shoulders. And then they were instructed to leap up and down. And so this is sort of an unloading type of hop and you can get really high with it. So it was pretty fun. And I had some girls doing like some crazy leaps every now and then in there where they would just go into a split. So it was pretty fun. And then we would do drop hops off uh, sort of lower heights than typical for drop jumps where they would just uh, drop off and then use their ankles only to get up off the ground and then some sort of prancing type things again just with the ankle. So with that we were able to kind of see you know is this even feasible doing a strength and conditioning program that targets just the ankle joint and will people like it? And we, we had some very positive feedback, which was cool because, you know, it's hard to not get bored when you're doing just the same movements around one joint. There's not too much variation, but we tried to really make it a, you know, well thought out strength and conditioning program and felt that the girls were pretty responsive towards it, which was, which was neat. Yeah, for sure. So you touched on it there, but there are some things that teachers listening are probably thinking, yeah, I do sort of that sort of thing with my dancers anyway, which is great. But what other practical applications does this research have on a smaller scale? So in a typical studio, how might teachers be able to take away the really important parts of this research and apply it to their dancers? 
Yeah. So that, that's such an amazing question. And that's like the most important part of this research. So I think that in dance, there's such a big culture around go, 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 go until either you're exhausted or until you got it right. <laughs> There's like a 50-50 chance that, that both of those or none of those will happen or who even knows. But um, so I think, and this is, I didn't even really touch on this earlier, but I think this is really important is rest. And in between running dances or running drills or doing floor work, giving rest, because really that helps to get the sort of bang for your buck out of training. Uh, so from that aspect, I really had to police my dancers because when they came in, they wanted to get through the workout and do it all at once. And I had to time their rest intervals because it's just not really a thing in dance. And I think that that's where strength and conditioning is, is great to learn from that you benefit quite a bit from rest. So implementing rest is huge and obviously water breaks with that and then uh from just kind of like a class organization and this is my personal philosophy is getting out the bigger sort of more challenging parts of the training in the beginning so if you're going to be doing any type of really intense floor work or you know practicing jumps, leaps, that should be done initially. Uh, and then also really just paying attention to how people move and figuring out, you know, if they're not moving a certain way, why might that be looking at them, you know, more, more closely uh, with in mind, sort of, I, I think with the ankle in mind. So having, you know, girls, not really getting off the floor well maybe they're not pointing their toes as much um because obviously if you're articulating all the way through the toe then you should be having a beautiful pointed foot um and maybe they're not strong enough to do that so in order to develop strength within a studio it's much more challenging because we don't have you know a barbell in a dance studio always but there are plenty of ways to do sort of like partner resistance training stuff even. Um, and having dancers sort of, if you have your hand on a dancer's foot and ask them to point as hard as they can, and then on the back of the foot, flex as hard as they can, on the side, everting, and then inverting, you know, doing those types of things where you're creating the resistance, I think can be uh, ways to do stuff in the studio. So sort of to, to wrap up that, um, that answer, just practical applications, trying to do new things, trying to do new things, trying to rest, uh, and then, yeah, kind of paying attention to each individual and how they might need assistance. Yeah, so leading really nicely off that, so an individual approach is really important with strength and, strength and conditioning, which we know, um, but this can be really hard to achieve in a studio. So if you've got a class of 20 kids, it can be really hard to get this individual approach. So what advice would you give to teachers on how to do this in their classes? Yeah, so I am definitely not an expert in this. I have some friends who've 
had to overcome some challenges with that. But I think really, you know, it depends on the level of the dancer and sort of where they're at in, in developing as well, because some girls and some boys as well are really interested in that strength and conditioning aspect of things and others, maybe not as much. So I think making sure that, uh, students know the benefit of strength and conditioning is super important. So to get people to buy into, you know, this whole additional training, supplementary training uh, with dance, there needs to be, I mean, why? If you have a dancer who's phenomenal and they're doing this and doing that and getting lead roles or whatever it might be, why do they need that? And I think it's just like explaining it to any other athlete where, uh, it's not just something to make you better, but it's also to help prevent some injury and, you know, sort of balance overall health. So I think for teachers uh, to get the ball rolling, it's to explain the benefit of it. And then on top of that, figure out kind of, yeah, innovative ways to implement some exercises and Maybe rather than doing a billion just calf raises, um, trying to do mix in some different some different things. Yeah, for sure. So on that line of um, educating dancers, I guess um, of either your study or of the practical applications that we've just talked about, what sort of benefits are there? What positive outcomes are there? So either that you found from your study or from what could dancers expect to see? Why should they be doing this then? So one really, really interesting thing that some of the dancers I trained told me, which I was not expecting, was that they felt like their balance really improved. And I was pretty floored by that because it was like all of these different objectives I'd had for the training program were to, you know, increase maximal strength, to increase jump height, all this stuff. And they felt like when they were doing the isometrics block in particular and they had to hold you know like 80 kilos on their back while being on their toes i mean that was really challenging for their balance so i loved hearing that because balance is so huge for dancers so they felt like they actually were stronger um not only in their leaps but also in their turns so that was pretty cool and i think being stronger in your leaps and turns and dance you can't really go wrong there so say they're the benefits, but I guess are there any considerations or limitations or just things to be mindful of that teachers should consider if they're trying to implement this research? And something off that that I found when we spoke the other day that I found really interesting is he said that dancers are athletes, but they're unique athletes, which I guess hopefully fits in here. So how mm. does, um, what considerations are there that might affect the way dancers might train? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's no secret. Dancers are concerned about a uh, body mass to power output ratio. So they don't want to put on too much mass or they feel like either it doesn't look great aesthetically or they can't get up off the ground like previously. So I think that's, you know, when you look at a dancer, they're so lean and, you know, they're just, they're solid athletes. But if, if you look at, you know, sort of the build of their arms and of their thighs, again, like pretty narrow compared to other elite athletes. But if you look at their calf muscles, 
they have really big developed calf muscles. And I love that because it's just a testament to the fact that they really do use their lower leg quite a bit to get up off the ground. So I think just when you look at, you know, the appearance of an athlete, whatever is really developed means that they're using that a lot and they need that a lot. So they are, they're totally unique athletes because there's also this different, you know, there's this different side of it where they don't really react to anything. There's always choreography. So they always know what they're going to do. So I think, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting it's such an interesting area um, of research, but limitations are that, you know, again, if you change someone's movement patterns and their mechanics, that could potentially put them at risk to lose some of their already developed capabilities. So really being aware of that. So I am a huge proponent, um, proponent for back squatting I think with dancers, you have to really teach them proper mechanics because of that tendency to keep the shoulders directly over the hips could hurt a dancer if they're back squatting that way. So dancers in that sense need to learn how to bring the weight into the heels so that they're driving into the heels or the the midfoot because if they've got weight in their toes always still, then they're putting their knees at risk. And so then if you start getting patellar tendinopathies, then that's not good either. And then in addition to that, if they've got, you know, their shoulders right over their hips still, then they're, you know, they're sort of not going to complete the lift. So I think it's super important to know how to lift properly. So the limitation and consideration there is, you know, is someone ready for those types of lifts? And then also on top of that, when you are doing those types of lifts, you're co-contracting the hamstring muscle group. So there is a potential to to shorten those muscles. And for dancers, you don't want to shorten those muscles because you need the full flexibility of the hamstring. Now, there's not as much concern there for the gastroc because we always operate in a shortened position. So the length of the muscle is always much shorter. So it's not as big of a deal when you're training that. So that's sort of my, my outlook on it. Uh, but I still think that squatting with dancers can really help jumping. It just has to be done in a very meticulous way um, and very calculated way. Sure, so what implications then might this have for the future of dance training as a wider picture? Where do you see this research going, I guess? I think this research, I mean, there have been you know, kind of a lot of different facets of it, but in, in sort of the, the broad scheme of things, finding out muscle stiffness and tendon stiffness uh, of dancers before they train. So seeing like what their intrinsic properties are, I think will be interesting because, you know, if a dancer is a certain way, that means that what they've been doing likely contributed to that. So do you want to change that or do you want to just uh, hone what they already have? So I think that's kind of the direction that this is going in to find out, you know, what do dancers have? When you change it, is that positive or negative? And going from there to make sure that dancers' stretch shortening cycle performance is 
optimal and they're getting to this sort of ideal uh, of, of athleticism because at the end of the day too, it doesn't really matter what someone's maximal strength is or whether they have really stiff muscles or really compliant tendons, but are they performing to the best of their ability? And if they're performing to the best of their ability, then you look back at those things and try and then help other athletes get to that point. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So for students listening, there's so much amazing knowledge here that hopefully they'll come away with. But if they'd like to use some of this research to enhance their own training, so if they're thinking, yeah, this is really great and I feel like I could really benefit from some of this, what should their first steps be into this big world of stretch shortening cycles? Yeah, so I think, you know, stretch shortening cycles are all over dance, you know, and, and we leap and we jump and do a lot of that. I think knowing uh, sort of what your strengths and weaknesses are really good. So if you're already an amazing leaper, or if you are struggling with your leaps, that'll sort of determine where you need to start. But trying to seek out resources uh, from different strength and conditioning professionals or looking at uh, that one paper that I had mentioned, there's some progressions in there where you can try and practice the different exercises and figure out, you know, what, what might be an area that you could work on and see if it works. And if it doesn't, it's always trial and error. And especially during these times being at home with COVID, I think, you know, there's a lot to try, but really what's, you know, sort of at the beginning of all of that is talk to your uh, dance teacher or instructor. If you do have a strength and conditioning coach, speak with them too, and maybe bring it up and ask them if you could work on something together. And, you know, anyone can be an artist and, you know, do strength and conditioning programming. So I think, you know, just being mindful of what are some things to be cautious of and making sure that things are, uh, you know, safe first is super important. But yeah, it's, it's a great area to learn about, especially uh, with dance, strength and conditioning is just growing rapidly right now, which is very exciting. Yeah, definitely. So before we end this podcast, is there anything else you'd like to mention or discuss before we go? Anything you think is really important that you'd like to leave on? You know, I just think that overall dancers have so much potential and one of the biggest reasons that they have so much potential is because they start training from such a young age. And so getting sort of the mindset that, you know, dance partnered with other types of exercises is a huge thing. And I'm hoping that any dance teachers listening to this will continue to consider other ways that they can inspire that in their students. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Paige. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Jasmine. Take care. You can find Paige's contact details in the description box of the podcast and also some really useful resources on this topic. I hope you enjoyed it and see you again next Monday for another episode of Dance.